following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. Jesus said, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. That was out of Matthew, the seventh chapter, verses 13 and 14. Then we find in Luke, the 13th chapter, verse 24, and this is the King James Version, Strive to enter in at the straight gate, for many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. That word strive in the Greek means to exert every possible ounce of energy. Total control, and total maximum output on your part or mine to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. I'm Ray Greenley, pastor of the National Prayer Chapel. We're located in Woodbridge, Virginia, and this is Pilgrim's Progress. We're reading from a book written by John Bunyan in 16, it was actually published in 1678. This is an edited edition with updated English, updated in 2009 by C.J. Lovick, and it's published by Crossway Publishers. We're reading it by permission because it is copyrighted material, the edited material is copyrighted. You know, as I as I look at this book and as I read it, there's a, a growing conviction in my heart that literally this is a journey. And this is very difficult for we who are Americans to consider. I ask questions of almost every Christian I meet And one of the questions that I regularly ask, let me ask you. If you continue on the path that you are currently on, are you sure you will go to heaven? Almost always Christians answer that question with an affirmative, well, yes, I'm saved. When asked another question, Are you living in known rebellion and sin against Jesus? Almost every Christian I ask answers yes. And of course, that sets up this dichotomy. How can you expect to be saved and yet walk in wickedness? My heart always rejoices at those who say to me, No. 
I'm not walking in any known rebellion against God, and when I'm tempted, I quickly move away from it. I mean, that is a person who has decided to go on this pilgrimage and to follow Jesus. Now, you might say to me, Pastor, are you saved? And I have to answer that in two ways. First, I answer, yes, I'm saved. And I'm speaking now in terms of what the book of Ephesians says about being saved. I have received that first deposit of the Holy Spirit that seals me, that assures me that I have been born again, that I am a new creature in Christ, that I no longer am bound in the bondages of sin, and all of my past sin has been forgiven, and I now, by the power of the blood of Jesus, have the authority and the power to say no to sin. But now if you ask on the second part, are you saved? That would be like asking Pilgrim, Christian, in this book, Pilgrim's Progress, are you in the celestial city? And as he journeyed, he would say, absolutely not. That's why I'm on this journey. So the answer to the question, am I saved, from John Bunyan's perspective, must be, yes, I've entered by the narrow gate. Yes, I have gone to the cross. Yes, I've been changed into a new creature. But no, I'm not saved yet because I'm not in the celestial city. So there is a period of time from his perspective and mine that Christian is making the journey and he does not have the assurance that he will not fail in his journey. And we're going to begin going through a number of different places where he will have a very, very difficult time, almost despairing of his life, while others who are on this narrow path do in fact end up in destruction and are not able to complete the journey. One such man is called ignorance. And this man believes that he will be welcomed into the heavenly city because he has traveled the narrow way. But he has no... He has no... Uh, demonstration in his life that he is a new creature in Christ. He simply lives his life walking as he chooses, confident that he will be saved. I fear that many of you listening to this broadcast have been touched or caught in the American dream and that we as Americans with arrogance of heart actually believe the lie that we are exceptional and believe the lie that we are granted heaven simply because we're wonderful people. 
and nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus was very clear in this dreadful idea in the Sermon on the Mount. Let me read it for you. This is Matthew, the seventh chapter, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers, or you lawless ones, or you rebellious ones. Now, I don't know if that terrifies you like it does me. It's clear that he's speaking here about men and women, boys and girls, who say they are Christians. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, They're accustomed, in other words, to calling Jesus Lord of their life. They have done many wonderful things. Now, most of you today would not claim that you have prophesied or that you've cast out demons or that you've performed many miracles. So you were not even able to reach the level of spiritual life that allowed you to walk in these giftings of the Spirit And yet somehow we have been assured, don't worry, be happy, you're saved. I have a very grave concern about my own salvation. Yes, I'm saved in that I entered into that narrow path. And yes, I'm saved in the sense that I was born again and I'm transformed into a new creature. But my fear is, I'm an American with the mind frame and the mindset of such luxury and such entitlement that I can live my normal life and simply add to it the wonderful life of Jesus and somehow imagine that I am then saved. Let me put it this way. If you are not striving to enter into the heavenly realm, if you are not expending all of your energy and your time, focus on entry into the final kingdom of God, I am very certain in my heart that when you get to the end, the Lord will say to you, depart from me, I don't know you. Now, when I read stories of many of the bold Christians in China, such a testimony of of sacrifice, of giving over their lives, every time they go to church, they risk their family's life and their life. They risk being put in prison and beaten and executed. This is true in many parts of the world. It will be true in America one day. But as of yet, we're very comfortable in America. I'm concerned because 
you're not going to be able to understand the heart of Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress until you begin to cry out in your heart, Lord, what must I do to be saved? And that cry is not one that simply takes us through the narrow gate, and it's not one that simply takes us to the cross of Jesus. It's a cry that must continue to come from our hearts as we make this journey toward heaven. And I confess, many times I am distracted. I'm distracted by things in the media. I'm distracted by what friends will say to me. And suddenly I recognize that I have eased back and I'm casual and I think everything's fine. And then suddenly some fiery trial will come upon me and my heart wants first to turn into discouragement and despondency and and say, why is this happening? And how am I going to make it through? I know these things come to quickly put me on alert again. You see, here's the difficulty. We're not traveling through Beulah land. We're not journeying through some innocent country. We're traveling in the midst of the very enemies of Jesus Christ. We are strangers and aliens in the midst of a pagan and apostate world. And every kind of unclean thing is flowing out of our government, out of our media, out of our friends. Many of you are still on Facebook. I urge you, in the name of Jesus, leave Facebook. I have a dear friend who is an FBI agent, and he has said to me, Ray, I'm warning you and your congregation, do not be on Facebook. Do not be on any social media where you expose the details of your life. There is grave danger. Well, I say this to people, and quickly they smile. And they say, you're just old-fashioned. I have to tell you, for a while I was on Facebook, and I saw the utter insanity that was constantly being posted. I saw Christians saying and doing things that brought a blush to my face. I even saw things that my church members were saying and doing on Facebook that caused me to be ashamed and caused me to recognize that I had begun to compromise. So I come today to read these passages from Pilgrim's Progress, but I hope as I share these, there will be an alarm going off in your heart. Only you can judge whether you're using every ounce of your energy to enter into the kingdom of heaven. But know today that if you are not doing so, you will not enter the kingdom of God. There is no room for 
pulling back and feeling comfortable and believing the lie that we're dwelling in Beulah land. We're dwelling in the midst of the most wicked enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ. And it will require everything of us pressing in, crying out before the Lord, shedding tears. It will take everything for us to enter in, and then it will take the same effort on your part and mine to pray in those precious ones that our heart is very connected to, that we desire to join us for eternity. And it might be well to take a moment and think about who is it that you would like to spend eternity with? And how will you feel if you're there and they're not? And what are you willing to say and do? What are you willing to risk to make certain that that precious granddaughter or grandson, that son or daughter, that husband or wife, what are you willing to sacrifice to ensure that they will be in heaven? Are you willing to risk alienation? Are you willing to risk scorn? Are you willing to risk broken relationship for a time here in order that they might awaken to their grave danger. Now, we're not going to read today, Christiana, when I finished Pilgrim's Progress with you. However, I will go into Christiana. Christiana was book number two written by Bunyan about this journey to heaven. Christiana was the wife of Christian, and she scorned him for his earnest desire to make this pilgrimage to heaven. She treated him very poorly. There was a broken relationship between them because he would not consider living in the constant worldliness of that day. Instead, he was going to press on toward heaven. And finally, after Christian enters the celestial city, Christiana awakens with shame in her heart and says, I must follow my husband. And so she and her children then pursue this way of righteousness in order to make their way to the celestial city. Let me give you our phone number. It's 877 877- If you would like to join on air, it's it's your privilege. Recognize that if you do call, we're going to talk about the serious issues of your salvation. That should not scare you. That should rather entice you. Your response to that will be very much looked upon by the Holy Spirit to determine part of where you are in the Spirit. There comes a time when a Christian has to say, I'm on the wrong road. I'm not making progress toward heaven. Things have to change. And then you make new choices about how you're going to use your future. Let's turn now to page 104 of the Pilgrim's Progress. We pick it up as faithful 
has joined together with Christian. As they walk together, they share the story of what happened. And I need to review some of what I shared yesterday in order for you to understand the next part. The question is asked, did you meet with any assaults on your journey? And Faithful responds, when I came to the foot of the hill called Difficulty, I met a very old man who asked me my name and destination. I told him that I was a pilgrim going to the celestial city. Then the old man said to me, You look like an honest fellow. Would you be willing to come and live with and work with me for the wages that I would be willing to give you? Then I asked him his name and where he lived. He said his name was Adam the first, and that he lived in the town of Deceit. I then asked him what sort of work he had for me to do and and what were the wages he would pay. He told me that his work included many delights, and for wages he would make me the heir of his estate. I further asked him what sort of house he lived in and what the other servants were that he had. So he told me that his house was maintained with all the dainties in the world and that his servants were all relatives of his. I asked him if he had any children. He said that he had three daughters, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life, and he told me that I could marry them all if I wished. Then I asked for how long a time he would have me live with him. He told me that I would live with him for as long as he lived. What was the outcome of this discussion, Christian asked? Why, at first, I found myself somewhat inclined to go with the man, for I thought that his offer sounded very good. But as I looked at his forehead and spoke with him, I saw written, put off the old man with his deeds. I want to stop a moment. This may not sound like much of a temptation to you, but when you're on this road following after the Lord Jesus Christ, you often come to places where it seems you do not have enough to provide for your necessities. You will come to places in the road where you will have no place to lay your head. Remember, a man said, I would come and follow you, Jesus. And he said, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. The birds of the air have nests. The the fox have holes in the ground. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. You will come on this journey to places where there will be no adequate provision for you And at that point, deceit will come and say to you, look, I have a wonderful job for you. You're welcome to come and live with me, and you can indulge in the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and in the pride of life, and I'll make you a wonderfully happy man. This temptation has come to me on a number of occasions. I remember in one incidence, I had left the church where I'd been pastoring 
because the Lord directed me to leave it. And for the next 30 days, I waited before the God, before the Lord God of heaven with fasting and with prayer. I knew I was called to preach, but I didn't know where to go to begin preaching. And then an offer came to me to be the head chaplain of a 300-bed hospital in a very fine city in America. I thought, that sounds like a wonderful job. That's my out. The salary is the best salary I would have ever had in my life. I mean, it was the answer for me. And so I spoke further with the authorities in that hospital, and I asked them to tell me, what's the real job of a hospital chaplain? And they told me my real job was to keep the patients happy and to be certain that I was able to prevent any animosity and that no lawsuits would come against the hospital. I said, I thought my job as a chaplain was to minister to sick people and invite them to follow Jesus. And this administrator kind of kicked back in his chair and he looked at me and he said, Pastor, don't be naive. Don't be naive. The hospital is a business and you're here as one of the team members to make sure that this business is successful. I thanked him for his offer and said, no, thank you. How could I accept that kind of position under that kind of leadership. There was no heart for God, and this was a so-called Christian hospital. I later discovered that this so-called Christian hospital also did late-term abortions. And I lifted my hands to the Lord, and I praised him that I had not been caught in such a wicked snare. I had the same kind of thing happen on another occasion. During seminary, I signed up as a Navy chaplain. I received my commission, and then as I went out to begin my work as a pastor, ordination did not come for a four-year period of time in the denomination in which I was in. They wanted to see evidence that you were truly called to the gospel ministry before they would ordain you. And so while I was waiting for that ordination time, I became very involved with the local naval corps and began attending different meetings and and came under the headship of another naval chaplain. As I was ready to be ordained, this Navy chaplain called me into his office, and I at that point was a first lieutenant. He said to me, Ray, I don't want to tell you this, but if you take a position as a Navy chaplain and you go to Vietnam, you're going to be court-martialed. I said, why would that be true? He said, because your primary focus is to lift up Jesus and the cross and to call men to serve 
Jesus Christ. He said, that's not what the naval chaplaincy is about. In the Navy, when you're a chaplain, your primary task is to make certain that the men are confident and happy. You're a liaison between the commanding officer and the men, and you're there psychologically to ensure that the men are going to be in a condition to do their jobs and to accomplish their mission. We're here in the Navy to accomplish our mission, and your mission is different than the mission of the Navy. And so you need to recognize that and not walk yourself into a trap. Well, I immediately resigned my commission, and I was very grateful that this chaplain had been willing to be honest with me and recognize that my first priority was not the mission of the Navy. My first priority was the mission of Jesus Christ. And I had spent all of my time to that point in the Navy inviting men and women to be followers of Jesus Christ and teaching them how to be followers of Jesus. These kinds of deceitful snares will come upon you when you follow Jesus. And you have to look at them and make an evaluation. Will I, in this setting, be free to pursue Jesus Christ? A member of our congregation yesterday called me and said, I just lost my job. Well, why did you lose your job? I lost my job because of my testimony about Jesus and about my life. And they were uncomfortable with my saying things to people about the gospel. Well, I said to him, congratulations. That's a wonderful thing that's happened. And then the same day, he was able to start another job. The Lord opened for him another position where he's been told, you are welcome to talk about Jesus here. You're welcome to say, God bless you. This is a place where you're welcome to be comfortable as long as you accomplish your sales goals. Well, now he's in a position where he can honestly witness about Jesus Christ. He can talk about his journey in Jesus. These are the kinds of snares we have to look out for, where we don't put on the deeds of the old man, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, and find ourselves entrapped in a deceitful place where it's required of us to lie and to put aside our commitment to Jesus and pursue some goal other than that of the journey toward heaven. Let's read again. And then what happened? Then he came rushing into my mind 
it came rushing into my mind that despite his flattering words, he would sell me as a slave when we got to his home. Faithful said, So I asked him to stop talking, and I told him I would not come near his door. Then he cursed me, and he told me he would send someone after me that would make my soul bitter. So I turned to go away from him, but just as I turned to go, I felt him take a hold of my flesh and give me such a deadly pinch that I thought he'd pulled a part of me off. This made me shriek, Oh, wretched man! So I went on my way up the hill of difficulty. Now when I had climbed about halfway up, I looked behind and saw someone coming after me, swift as the wind. Soon he overtook me just about the place where the arbor stands. Oh, that's the place, said Christian, where I sat down to rest and fell asleep and lost my scroll. Dear brother, hear me out, faithful urged. So, as soon as the man overtook me without saying a word, he struck me and knocked me down unconscious. When I came to, I asked him why he had thus assaulted me. He said that it was because of my secret inclination to follow Adam the first. And with that, he struck me with another deadly blow on the chest and beat me down backward and I lay at his feet as if I were dead. So when I came to, I cried to him for mercy, but he said, I do not know how to show mercy, and with that he knocked me down again. He would have beaten me to death, except one came by and told him to stop. Who was it that told him to stop? I did not recognize him at first. But as he went by, I saw the wounds in his hands and on his side, and then I concluded it was our Lord. So I continued up the hill. Christian then explained, The man who overtook you was Moses. He spares no one, and he does not know how to show mercy to anyone who transgresses his law. I know that very well. It was not the first time that he had met with me. He was the one who had come to me when I lived securely at home and told me that he would burn my house over my head if I stayed there. So Christian asked, Didn't you see the house that stood on the top of the hill, on the side of the hill where where Moses met you? Well, yes, I saw the lions also before I came near the house. But I think they were asleep, for it was about noon, because I had so much of the day ahead of me. I passed by the pardon me, I passed by the porter and came down the hill. Yes, the porter told me that he saw you go by, Christian said. I wish you had visited the house, for they would have shown you many rarities that you would have remembered the rest of your life. But tell me, did you meet anyone else in the Valley of Humiliation? Yes. I met someone named Discontent, who would have gladly persuaded me to go back with him. His reasoning was that the valley was altogether without honor, 
He told me that if I went into the valley, I would be dishonoring all my friends, such as pride, arrogance, self-conceit, worldly glory, and others he knew. He said that they would be very much offended if I made a fool of myself by wading down through the valley of humiliation. Well, how did you answer him? Faithful replied, I told him that even though all those he named had once been my kindred, for undeniably they were my relations according to the flesh, they had disowned me since I'd become a pilgrim, as I had also rejected them. Therefore they had no more claim on me than those who had never been of my lineage. I told him, moreover, that he had misrepresented the valley of humiliation, for before there is any honor, there is humility, and a haughty spirit comes before a fall. So I told him that I would rather go through this valley to find the honor that true wise men seek than choose those things that this man and his worldly friends think most worthy of their affections. If you'd like to join me on air, our telephone number is 877-534-0780. I'm wondering, as you're listening to this book, Pilgrim's Progress, have you been called down into the Valley of Humiliation? And what has your experience been? Are you still walking through that? And I wonder... Do you understand that Moses comes, that is, the law comes, and beats us up because, yes, we're all inclined to go with the lust of the flesh or the lust of the eyes or the pride of life. First John tells us that those who walk in these things cannot enter into the kingdom of God, but there are times when we're inclined to step toward them, and then the law comes and beats us up and we know we've done wrong. But the law never delivers us from the lust of the flesh or the lust of the eyes or the pride of life. The law only beats us up, tells us how wrong we were, brings condemnation into our life. Are you walking today with condemnation? Are you walking in a in a way with the Lord Jesus Christ of utter shame, where you have utterly discounted the possibility of being successful in this journey toward the celestial city. What is your experience? How are you walking with Jesus today? And are you exerting every ounce of energy you have to make it through to walk clean before God? Have you finally come to a place where you've said, okay, enough is enough. I've had it with my sin. I've had it with this condemnation. I want to walk free in Jesus. 877-534-0780. You're welcome to join me on air. We have a few minutes left in this broadcast, and I'd love to hear from you. Christian continues and he begins to ask 
faithful if he had met anyone else in the valley? And faithful answers, yes, I met a man named Shame. However, of all the men that I met within my pilgrimage so far, I think he bears the wrong name. The others would leave me after I had a little bit of an argument with him, but this bold-faced shame would never leave me. Why? What did he say to you? Well, he objected to Christianity itself. He said it was pitiful, low, sneaking business for a man to consider being a Christian. He said that a tender conscience is an unmanly thing and that I would be the object of ridicule if I watched over my words and ways and did not allow myself the liberties to which the brave spirits of the times accustom themselves. That reminds me, I just saw in the news in the last couple of days a, a gathering in the military of atheists and they were celebrating their freedom from Jesus Christ and from the bondage of following after Jesus. And their recommendation to Christians was that they throw their Bible away and they go buy pornography. Now you tell me who's in bondage. And you tell me who is belittling women. They say today there's a war in America against women. I want to tell you there is a war against women and there is a war against men and against boys and girls and the war is against every person who would say I would have a tender conscience and walk clean before the Almighty. Every smorgasbord is laid with all of the wickedness of the world upon it wrapped in the most appealing of packages saying come and and sit at my table. But as I said yesterday, I know where my table is. It's found in Psalm 23. I sit at the table of the Lord. I'm only going to put my feet under the table of the Lord, and he says he will prepare there for me a banquet in the presence of mine enemies. And my enemies are the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those are my enemies. And they will not defeat you or me if we follow after Jesus. But the world will try to shame us. He also observed that not many mighty, rich, or wise are of the opinion that they should follow after Jesus. That's not quite true today. The church today is filled with mighty men, with rich men, with men of great wisdom and great worldliness. The church has become a social club where every kind of wickedness can gather and where the preacher does not speak against sin, does not speak of the blood, but instead speaks of all of the wonderful advantages of following after Jesus, the strategies for success, the prosperity. It's all a false gospel. It's not the gospel of Calvary. 
He also was quick to point out that most of the pilgrims are of disrepute. They're powerless and poor. He said that those who follow the way are out of step with the times in which they live, proving their ignorance and lack of understanding in all natural science. I just saw a news report yesterday where a a scientific, so-called scientific research project was done that revealed that born-again Christians have lower intellect than those who are not. It's utterly demonic. It's utterly foolish. But this is the shame that is being placed on Christians in America. For example, he said it was a shame to sit regretful and mournful under a sermon and a shame to come home sighing and groaning. He thought it a shame to ask my neighbor's forgiveness for petty offenses or to make restitution when I had taken away something that belonged to another. He said that Christianity estranges men from the company of great men who will tolerate vices, which he called by fine, respectable names, and makes them respect base sins because of their religious fraternity. Then he asked, Is not this a shame? And what what did you say to him? Christian asked. Well, at first, I didn't know what to say. He put my mind in such a spin that the blood rushed to my head. Shame almost silenced me. But then I began to consider that that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination to God. And I began to consider that shame was telling me what men were like, but nothing about what God or the Word of God is like. Moreover, I realized that on the day of judgment we will not be doomed to death or life. According to the harassing spirits of the world, but according to the wisdom and law of the highest. Therefore, thought I, what God says is indeed best, though all the men in the world are against it, seeing that God prefers his Christian faith and a tender conscience. I understand that he calls those people wise who make themselves fools for the kingdom of heaven and declares that the poor man who loves Christ is richer than the greatest man in the world who hates him. So I said, Shame, depart, for you are an enemy to my salvation. Shall I consider your arguments? Shame against my sovereign Lord? If so, then how can I look him in the face at his coming and And can I now be ashamed of his ways and servants and expect the blessing? Indeed, this shame was a bold villain. I could hardly get him to leave my company. He would haunt me and continually whisper in my ear about one or another of the infirmities that attend my life. At last I told him it was useless for him to attempt to persuade me further, for those things that he disdained were the very things in which I saw the most glory. So at last I was able to leave the company of this unfortunate man. I'm glad, my brother, that you stood up to this villain so bravely, Christian said, 
And I think you are right that he has the wrong name. For he is bold enough to follow us in the streets and attempt to put us to shame before all men. That is, to make us ashamed of that which is good. If we were not so, if he were not so audacious, he would even attempt, he would, he would never attempt to do what he does. But we will resist him, notwithstanding all of his bravo, for he is the promoter of fools. The wise will inherit honor, said Solomon, but fools get disgrace. Faithful said, I think we must pray to our Lord to help in resisting and fighting shame, for he desires us to be valiant for the truth while we go on our pilgrimage upon the earth. This issue of shame is so great where we turn aside from Jesus because we're afraid of what people will think. We're afraid of what our family will say. We're afraid they'll say we should not sacrifice so much time or or money, that we should not be so narrow-minded, that we should instead go to the club with them or, or go to the dance with them or we should go to the movies with them and watch vile things that fill our hearts and minds with dark images. It's astonishing to me that what is sweet is considered bitter in the world, and what is bitter in the world is sweet to Jesus. I wonder, have you been ashamed of Jesus? Have you been afraid to speak and confess openly the name of Jesus Christ? Have you been fearful of what people would say or do to you if you were bold in inviting them to follow Jesus with you? Have you invited anyone today to follow after Jesus? Well, I am bold in my proclamation here. My name is Ray Greenley. I pastor the National Prayer Chapel. We are a small fellowship of people. You can imagine so from what I've been saying to you. We are not smiled upon in the world. We're not a congregation of wealthy and powerful people. Rather, we're the least of God's children, the least significant of God's children. But our heart is to follow Jesus, to walk through the valley of humility and not to be ashamed of our Lord and our Master, not to be ashamed of Jesus. I wonder, are you ashamed of Jesus? Have you turned your back on him? And if you continue walking the way you are today, are you confident that you will arrive at the celestial city and be welcomed into that holy and high place? Consider carefully the decision you make. Lord, I lift up each person listening to this broadcast today. I ask that you would move in their hearts with great power and authority. I ask that conviction would flow, that men and women would awaken 
and turn from their arrogance and walk through the valley of humiliation, where they would be willing finally to honestly and and with all their heart cry out, What must I do to be saved? Lord, I pray that you will break the lies of the enemy and that you will bring them fully into the kingdom of our Savior Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Amen. God bless you. I'll talk with you tomorrow. His glory with great joy With great joy Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling And to present you blameless Before the presence of his glory With great joy With great Of his glory.